I am excited to share with you today the message that the Lord placed on my heart for this series. Um, we did a Christmas at the movies poll, and in the top four, I think it may have been two or three, was a movie that has always been rated as one of the best, highest rated movies around Christmas time. Some people agree or disagree, but at least our poll shows that this was true. The 1989 classic National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which tells the story, see you're laughing, tells the story of the Griswold family. And as the holidays approach, Clark Griswold wants to have the perfect family Christmas. He gets everything in line, gets the tree, and he gets the decorations up, and he's got everything set. This is going to be the best Christmas ever. However, things go awry, not as expected, and he faces disappointment after disappointment. He strings a gazillion lights on his home, and he basically blows the grid for his neighborhood. And then they um, don't realize it, but Cousin Eddie and his family show up unplanned, park with their camper on their property, and uh, this Cousin Eddie uh, makes life somewhat miserable for him. And in this time, he's growing more and more discouraged as he's waiting for a bonus check from his company, and he's wondering whether it will come. They finally sit down at the Christmas Eve dinner, and out of the tree, there has been a squirrel hiding. It jumps onto the Christmas table where they're all seated with all the family and runs through and completely messes up the whole Christmas meal, jumps down, the dog chases it, destroys the house. And you can't think things can get worse, but as that happens, the cat gets electrocuted and Uncle Lewis accidentally burns down the Christmas tree and you think you're at your lowest. Clark's expectations of the best Christmas ever have been seriously diminished until there's a knock at the door. I have a delivery for Clark W. Griezmann. Uh, I was supposed to deliver it yesterday, but it fell between the seats. I didn't see it. I'm sorry. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I can't believe it. What is it? A letter confirming your reservation at the Nut House? It's from my company. Your bonus. My bonus. <laughs> Open it, Clarky. Open it. Yeah, I hope it's a fort, Clark. <laughs> you do, Eddie? Oh, I was afraid of sight. Are you going to ball all over it or are you going to open it? <laughs> oh, I was, I was going to wait till tomorrow to tell you all this, but what the heck? With this bonus check, I'm putting in a swimming pool. (laughs) That's it. That's the big one. (laughs) I'm sorry if I've been a little short with everyone lately. I've been waiting for this bonus. To make sure the pool goes in as soon as the ground thaws, I had to lay out the money in advance. And until this little miracle arrived, I didn't have enough in my account to cover the check I wrote. Tear the snow Dad. Yeah. <laughs> Drum roll. 
enough left over. I'm going to fly you all down here to help us dedicate it. I can't swim, Clark. I know that, Eddie. in the Jelly of the Month Club. Oh, God. Clark, that's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. That it is, Edward. That it is indeed. I'm sorry. Ouch. Seriously depleted his funds and invested in a pool... And all he's getting is jelly of the month. Clark snaps. Disappointment after disappointment has crushed his hope. He's literally poor. He's been humiliated and humbled. And he feels, I think, hopeless. Any hope for a perfect Christmas is gone. I don't know if you have felt that way over this year, 2020. But I know in my own home, I have had trips that I had to cancel, had some things that have come up that I really was looking forward to. And, and, and man, we had a trip also with a family vacation that we're going to do, and it couldn't happen fully the way we wanted it. And Thanksgiving was coming, and we were all excited, and, and things again occurred. Someone had contact with COVID, and we did Thanksgiving alone. And we have experienced, I think like some of you have, serious diminished expectations, Right? Well, that's the story of Christmas. You don't realize it, um, but the Bible, um, this story we, we celebrate every year is for those who have been crushed by the weight of expectations that have been unmet. Christmas comes to the disappointed, the discouraged, the doubting. It comes to those who have seriously diminished expectations. It's the story of people who are not who you would expected who would be visited. It's the story of people who, when they even hear the good news, everything afterwards seems to get worse and worse. Mary is pregnant before they get married. They face all the ridicule. They make their way down to Bethlehem because of a census, and on and on. Things seem to get worse. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. Let's listen to this first part of the Christmas story, which sets up the actual birth that will occur. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee. And those words are words to recognize. Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel said to her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he'll be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative, Elizabeth, has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we hear your word and your message that you would speak through this to our hearts about our own situation. Whether we are in a place where we're in, um, where there's joy and we're uh, in a really good place, help us to understand how we can help others who may not be. And for those, God, who are in a place where they have felt disappointment and discouragement, I pray that you would be the hope in their heart today. In Christ's name, amen. You know, we're way too familiar with this story. We hear it over and over again, and we hear it from this side of the story being told, from history looking back. But at the time, and even before that time, there's some things in this story that really was completely unexpected and and didn't make sense. In fact, the story begins in the most unusual place, Nazareth. An angel, Gabriel, comes to this backwards, backwards, behind the times, and I would would say always out of fashion little town of Nazareth. The birth announcement of God's one and only son is here, Nazareth. Not Jerusalem or Bethel, or Hebron, or any number of other prominent cities that most people would have expected. In fact, the setting for the Annunciation drew amazement from the first century Jewish readers because Gabriel ignored Judea, which was the heartland of all of God's activity for the past number of centuries. And he comes to Galilee, a land that was subject to abiding Jewish contempt. That area north of of uh, the heartland of Judea was, was looked down upon because they had um, become racially and spiritually impure. They had actually watered down in the eyes of others the faith of Abraham and Moses. But God visits them. Think about it. It'd be as if God came to a church of people who you believe aren't as doctrinally sound as you or as spiritually committed as you. But they have one thing God is really looking for. Humility. Poverty of spirit. Seriously diminished expectations due to their failure or their mismanagement of their life. They're broken or they're needy. And God visits them. And then you add injury to insult on this because what happens is the angel not only bypassed Judea for Galilee, But he actually bypasses the city of Jerusalem for a little place called Nazareth. Nazareth was a non-place in that day. If you were to ask people about it, it'd be almost like saying, uh, do you know where Embarrass, Minnesota is? Now, some of you would know, but most people wouldn't have any idea. 
It was not even mentioned in the Old Testament or even in the writings of Josephus. It's not mentioned in any of the, the, the rabbinical literature from the Talmudic to the Midrashic literature. It's just not even, it's not even a, a, a place of recognition in any way. It wasn't until, in fact, 1962 that a pre-Christian mention of Nazareth was found in Caesarea Maritima. They discovered it, and its prominence only became important after the birth of Jesus. Nazareth was nothing in that day but a shoddy, corrupt halfway stop between port cities of Tyre and Sidon, overrun by Gentiles and by the Romans. In the account of, of, of Jesus in John chapter 1 verses 43 through 46 is really telling because Jesus is calling his disciples together. He's called Philip and Philip is so excited he goes and runs and gets his friend Nathaniel and he says to Nathaniel, we found him. The one we've all been waiting for. He's here. It's Jesus. And then he adds, from Nazareth. And if you look at verse 46, here's, here's the telling statement. This guileless, straight-talking Nathaniel exclaims with disgust, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was just an unlikely place for God to announce the appearance of his son. It was an unlikely place for God's son to grow up. There were no private schools. There were no Ivy League training. It's not the kind of place where you would want to have your son if you expected him to get ahead. And it only gets worse. Because as you read this story, after skipping Judea and Jerusalem, Gabriel also ignored the temple. The one place you think God might show up. He ignores the most holy place in Israel. And he goes to the lowly home of a peasant girl named Mary. And when Gabriel gets to Nazareth, he doesn't go to the wealthiest, most influential, most religious. He steps right past the the ruler of the synagogue, his home, goes past the mayor's home. He actually even goes past the Princess K of the Midwest Milky Way's home. And he goes to this peasant girl's home named Mary, the least expected stop. She was too young. She was too poor. And she's too much of a dreamer. Some manuscripts say that, um, and some ancient ones say that Mary is probably 14 or, or maybe 12 years of age. And so as with all peasant girls, she was most likely illiterate. And the only knowledge of scripture she may have had was what she heard either at home or in the synagogue. And from all indications, Mary's life would not be extraordinary. You would never expect that Mary be chosen. She would marry humbly, give birth to a numerous poor children, never travel farther than a few miles from her home, and one day die like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And then as we read the story, the Annunciation, you can, it's just an inescapable fact that, that the greatest news ever, ever proclaimed in Israel comes to the humblest of people. You just look at the nativity scene, and, and you, you, you would see it's filled with the, the hopeless, humble, and the poor, Mary and Joseph. And then along there are a bunch of shepherds. And then as well, there are these people who are Gentiles who come from the Far East, who were the most godless people from the area of Babylon and media area. If the incarnation happened today, it would be, I think, the same. 
the Lord would not be born in Jerusalem or Rome or London or Beijing or Washington, D.C., but on the ordinary streets of some nameless town to some ordinary nameless people surrounded by some ordinary nameless blue-collar backwoods people. The essential fact of the incarnation in the gospel is, is this. The Lord comes to needy people. Those who realize they can't make it without him. Those who have what I call seriously diminished expectations. They've blown it in some way. Or they have never measured up. Or they never will even have the opportunity to. Those who acknowledge their weakness and spiritual lack. This is what the Christmas story is all about. Those whose expectations have been seriously diminished. God loves those people and he comes to them. And when you think of all the acts of God throughout history, whether it be the incarnation or the cross or salvation or the resurrection which comes with power, even Christmas itself, they're not for the proud or the self-sufficient, but they're for the poor, humble, and hopeless. God comes for those who are discouraged and disappointed. They're wrestling with the Lord. They're struggling with pain. They're afflicted, they're ill, they're feeling broken, maybe by uh, a friend, they're feeling um, shattered by a poor decision, and they're in a place where they are just saying, God, I need help. Now, I want to take this part of the message and share with you, if you are in this place, or you have maybe, um, or you're not, you're going, this isn't any, I'm not in this place. I've had some things that haven't been good, but I'm not super discouraged or disappointed. I want you to be thinking about this in the sense that are there people around you? I believe in this time, we talk about people needing to know the compassion and the care of God. There is an opportunity for us to kind of keep our eyes open to know that there are people who are facing this. There are people who have gone through this, and as they're going through it, they might be in a place of not just discouragement, but maybe really anxious. And even in that anxiety, God's doing some work in their life. So I just want to give you kind of um, some words on how to handle the pain of this kind of hopelessness. What does it look like? What if your expectations have been seriously diminished? What if someone you know or love is in a season of disappointment? What do you do? And so I just want to give you some practical ideas of what I think is really important in a time where we're living in and what we might have some people experiencing. And in fact, some of you, I, I know as I speak, some of you are in this place. And the first thing I just want you to know is to know is to acknowledge God's presence. In each of the cases that I had shared with you with regard to the Christmas story, there is a sense of brokenness. There's a sense of expectations that aren't being met. In your poverty and in this humble state, I just want you to recognize that God is there and he is at work. I mean, you may not feel his presence. You may not see his hand moving. It may look like God is nowhere to be found, but I want to share with you that God is there, and I want you to know this hope. He is at work. He is at work in your situation. The first of the Beatitudes that Jesus shares is in Matthew chapter 5, 3, and I think it's interesting because the first thing he says is he says, blessed, happy, 
take comfort, almost in a sense, those of you who are poor. You're in a condition where you don't have the resources you need to move forward. And he says, I want you to understand this. If you are in this place right now where you're feeling discouraged, you have these diminished expectations, and they've been occurring, and they seem to keep occurring. God is saying, in this place, as you move into this place, I want you to recognize, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And what he means by this is this, in this place where you are acknowledging that you don't have the resources, he says the resources of God is all around you. He's at work. He is present. How many recognized that first Christmas that God had shown up? Think about it. The name Jesus, Emmanuel, means God with us. And you just go out throughout the whole land. How many people knew that God was there? That God was actually at work beginning to meet their need and their situation? That's how the Heavenly Father works, and that's how he's working in your life. You may feel alone, but you aren't. Jesus is with you. You may not see his hand at work in this place of poverty, but God is at work. You don't understand it. You don't see it. But what I want you to think about is here's the truth. God is there and he's working. You you begin to take the lie that says that he isn't and begin to replace it with the truth. That's what the word of God says. In faith, recognize, even though you don't see it, even though the people in that day didn't see it, when Jesus came, God was at work. Here's another thing I want you to think about is not only this fact that acknowledge that God is present and he's at work, is this, don't pretend. Whatever you do, I'm just going to say, refuse to hide. If you're dealing with some really deep um, emotions of pain or you're really discouraged or you're in a place maybe where you're depressed, just refuse to hide that. Be open with others and be authentic with your pain. Isolation is what destroys. Lies love to live in loneliness. And if you know of someone and they're in this place, help them become more real with what's going on. Help them not to pretend. Move into that place. There are people around you who you may not even realize it, or maybe you do see it, and it's it's important that you understand that. It's for this reason, when you continue to see what Jesus teaches, go to the Beatitudes, again, the very second Beatitude. You know what it says? It says, not only blessed are the poor, but it goes on and says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And, and it's just a simple truth. It's this idea that if you're going to pretend and you don't let people into a place where you're vulnerable and letting them know what's going on, there's no way anyone can comfort you. God can't even use other people to comfort you. And so it's just really important um, to, to move to the place where you feel those emotions and you don't deny it. That's one of the profound truths of getting help is going, I need help. And being able to vulnerably say that. Um, I uh, um, have had three major depressions in my life. At age 20, at age 40, and two years ago at age 60. And I remember sharing this with a friend of mine. Um, his name is John Ortberg, and he graciously walked through this time with me. I shared it with him my wife, and with some others, and have them praying. And what John said to me was kind of funny. He said, you're like the cicada grasshoppers with your depression. It comes every 20 years. And um, 
I kind of laughed at that. You, you really need to laugh in those kind of times. But during that time, it was, it was hardest for me just before Christmas. And I don't know if you're in that place. It, this tends to be, it's, it's kind of when Christmas or Thanksgiving, it's like the light shines into that situation and, and you see all the things that you've lost or you don't have or whatever's going on. And it seems to be really painful. And I remember when I was going through this, I would play over and over one song. So much so my wife just, I think, doesn't like it to this day. Um, but I would play a song by Pentatonix called Where Are You Christmas? And it sounds like this. Listen to that, and I would. Uh, you go. Well, why would you do that? Because it resonated with me so deeply. It was like God was using that to say it's okay to feel these feelings and to grieve. And then I started listening to another song. It was by the Eagles, Desperado. <laughs> and there's another line that just. It just kind of hit me with such force. At one point, the person said, you've got to let somebody love you. And I remember thinking, that's really true. And it's really hard to do it in those kind of places. And it put me on a quest, not for mere transparency, because I, I can do that even masking vulnerability, but it put me on a quest, an authentic hunger for being vulnerable with you and others. And saying, this is who I am. And this is where I feel weak. You may need to give that gift to somebody. And not try and help them and encourage them, you know, you gotta feel good and but you just may need to just say, hey, I feel those emotions and, and help me understand it. And help me um, get in touch with it. But it's not the place, obviously, you want to stay. I have to encourage you, if you're in a place and you've been in that place for a long time, you do need to quit pretending. You need to go see, I think, some professionals. You need some help. You need people around you. Um, One of the things you need to do, which is just what people don't like to do, is you need to make sure you're hydrated and get water. You need to make sure you sleep. You need to make sure that you eat well. And I'm not talking about Christmas cookies. You need to be eating nutritiously. And, and you need exercise. But then there's something that happens that as you move through this, what I found really interesting is, for me, one of the things that was really important for me was not just not to pretend, but now it was to move to a place as God was moving in my heart to look at what I have, not what I don't have. I needed to process that. 
I needed to practice that every morning. I needed to, and some people aren't journalers. I don't care if you're not a journal or not. It's not about that. I just needed to kind of list the thankful things I had and keep looking at that and saying, okay, God, I, I want to focus on what you have. And I have to tell you, God used that time to put to death some things inside of me that needed to die. And then he began to kind of give my eyes. And, and you need to grieve. I mean, that's why you have funerals. You need to grieve you, for, for what you don't have. You need to grieve for what you've lost. And it may take time to process that. But at a certain point, you have to stop looking at what you don't have. And you have to start saying, what do I have? And I love how practical the Bible is. You know, the Bible is very practical about this. The Bible tells us that when, when you're in those kind of places, there is a time to move on. First Samuel, verses 15 35 through 16, 1 is very interesting. It says, Samuel never went to meet with Saul again. Samuel and Saul were really close. And he was, he was the first king who was called. But he, but Samuel mourned constantly for him and the Lord was sorry he had ever made Saul king of Israel. Now listen to what the Lord says now. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you've mourned long enough for Saul. I've rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem and find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. It's interesting, it's to Bethlehem for the king that will be the king. And I, 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 there's a point where God just says, okay. Um, and again, I'm not saying if you're really in a serious, and in, in it's a physiologically caused depression and things like that, you need to get medical help. Don't bypass that but if it's one of these times where you've been discouraged you've gone through this and and your your expectations have been seriously diminished there also comes a point as you begin to look at what you have you also have to let go of what you've lost and like god says it's time to move on it's time to move forward there is a time to grieve and mourn there's also a time to begin to look at what you have and give god thanks another thing i would say is connect with others let people in your life get in a small group where you don't pretend. Do that for yourself, for your family, um, for your marriage. There's a new book out by Henry Cloud and John Townsend called How People Grow, What the Bible Reveals About Personal Growth. And he basically says one of the things that's been left out so often in personal growth, we give all these things, but one of the most important things is being engaged with other people who really know you, where you're living your life, not just with your family, but with others. Here's the truth about the beginning of the Christian movement. They met in living rooms. Think about that. They really knew each other. They really shared their lives with each other. They found non-judgmental and safe places where they could show up and people could help them and encourage them and, 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 and give them wisdom and then also at the same time say don't pretend and, and don't manipulate and, and whatever else it might need to be. And then here's the last thing I want to share with you. Put your hope in God. Trust that that the Trust the good that God is birthing through this experience right now that you're in. If you are in a place of seriously diminished expectations, of disappointment, discouragement, trust the fact that God is right now. Like I said, he's there and he's at work and he's birthing something really good. 
This is true in the physical realm because birth comes through pain, right? And often the physical realm just reflects what's happening in the spiritual realm. So I want to share with you, just here's a sonogram, if we have that, of a baby at six weeks. Sonograms are really cool things. They didn't have these years ago. You didn't even know. Sometimes women didn't even know they were pregnant. Sometimes they thought something was going on. They weren't quite sure. So I Googled, what is it, what does a woman feel when pregnant? And you know what popped up? 21 uncomfortable symptoms of pregnancy. And I didn't realize, I didn't even know this. I'm going to list fatigue, nausea, vomiting, frequent urination, headaches, swollen gums, constipation, dizziness, heartburn, indigestion. And we're not even halfway through the list. And as I was looking at that, I just felt for the first time, I felt like I needed to tell my wife, who is probably watching a live stream right now, I am so sorry. Birth comes through pain, right? Out of your struggle, God forms his life. He's forming his character. He's forming through you the things that he wants to do through you, the works he wants to do. I wish I could just show everyone in this situation, I wish I could have seen it two years ago, a a spiritual sonogram. Wouldn't it be really cool? You could look and you could see what God's forming. But he doesn't do that. He calls us to trust. I wish there was a spiritual sonogram. The Christmas story is a reminder that often God births his goodness and favor through pain. And I want to encourage you in the midst of this seriously diminished expectations where you may be discouraged, where you may be disappointed, I want you to know and I want those of you who aren't there to know that there are others out there who need to hear that through this pain, God is birthing something good. I, I love what it says here. And I, I, I didn't notice this. It's in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 31 and verse 33. It's something I didn't know till last week when I was preparing this message. And it just really hit me with some impact. He says, don't be afraid, Mary. The angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. If you have a fair paraphrase or others that says Israel, it's trying to get the idea that it's over all of Israel. But the word is actually Jacob. It's the house of Jacob. His kingdom will never end. And it's interesting, the angel doesn't call him by his new name, Israel. He actually uses the name Jacob for a reason. He's reminding them of the brokenness, the people they were. He's reminding them of who Jacob was. Think about this. Jacob is is born as a baby, and he's given the name manipulator, who is grabbing at the heels of his brother. He then tricks his father by getting him to give him the, um, the, the, the rights of the firstborn through this porridge that he makes. He labors then in, in, in as he runs away from, from his brother, he labors for 14 years. Seven years he gets tricked and he gets Leah. Seven more years he finally gets Rachel, the one he had his eyes on, who he loved. It's this struggle after struggle in his life. Wrestles with an angel and he's injured permanently so that he has to walk with a limp. Just think struggle after struggle, pain after pain, and after years of barrenness, his, his one Rachel he loves finally gives birth to a son, Joseph. And what happens with Joseph? One day, ten brothers come back. And they say, holding this multicolored, bloody garment, Joseph's dead. And once again, talk about seriously diminished expectations and, and a sense of hope and hopelessness. Finally, 
Rachel bears him another son. But even this birth comes out of unbearable pain, loss, and death. Listen to these words in Genesis 35, 15 through 30. I'm going to ask the team to come up at this time. He says, leaving Bethel, Jacob and his clan moved on toward Ephrath. But Rachel went into labor while they were some distance away. Her labor pains were intense. And this is, the, this is Rachel who he loves. After a very hard delivery, the midwife finally exclaimed, Don't be afraid, you have another son. And Rachel was about to die, but with her last breath, listen to her last breath, she names the baby Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. This is just sorrow upon sorrow. I'm barren for years. I have Joseph, and he's killed, and I have this last baby, and I die. But the baby's father, however, called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Jacob, uh, and it says, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Isn't that interesting? And Jacob set a stone of a monument over Rachel's grave, and it can be seen there to this day. And we sing so glowingly songs like Old Little Town of Bethlehem without understanding the incredible pain associated with that place. Because in Jacob's greatest loss, Rachel names the baby. But Jacob, in faith, names it son of my right hand, which is where David comes from, which is where Jesus comes from. Because prophetically he knew that in this child, in this birth, in this place, would come who would be the right hand of God. And I just want to say, out of your struggle, out of your brokenness, out of your pain, out of your 2020, God is bringing his goodness. He is birthing a work through you. I wish you could see your spiritual sonogram.